Hey, go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word. We're going to find ourselves in Genesis chapter 3 tonight. So it shouldn't take you very long to get there. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, so you're only going to get a few pages deep. As a matter of fact, in my copy of God's Word, it's actually going to be on page 3. So you don't have to go very far tonight to find the text that I feel like God has laid out for us with an assignment. The series is a tale of two gardens. And I guess you would say that tonight we're going to enter into the third chapter of the story that is taking us from the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Gethsemane. And when we left off, Adam and Eve were conversing with the serpent who was tempting them to eat the fruit of the tree that God forbid them to take from. And when the desire of self-gratification overcame them, they took the fruit And they ate it, and in so doing, they set into motion a tragedy of epic proportions. Sin had now entered into paradise, and things were never going to be the same as a result. Now, aware of their nakedness, shame fills the hearts of Adam and Eve. They weave together fig leaves in a feeble attempt to try to cover themselves, and then God comes down for his morning walk through the garden. That's where we're going to pick up the story again in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 8. God's word reads, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? Turn to somebody beside you and tell them this is not good. This is not good. That's actually going to be our title for tonight. This is not good. The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is not good for Adam and Eve. And beyond that, this is not good for any of us either. Very rarely do we realize how far-reaching the consequences of our own ill-advised choices go, at least in the moment in which we are making them. One moment of pleasure usually doesn't take into consideration a future spouse. One sip, one bump, one hit, one click on a website usually doesn't worry about addiction. One agreement to go along with something that everybody else is doing doesn't think to consider compromised character. Because very rarely do we realize in the moment in which we are making ill-advised choices just how far-reaching the consequences of those things will go. And just like Adam and Eve here in the garden, one bite surely won't lead to death. Adam and Eve had no idea how far the consequences of their choice would echo through history. But they made the choice, and now death has 
entered into a place where it had never previously existed. But death wouldn't be the only consequence. And it wouldn't just affect them either. And so our tale tonight, instead of going back and forth between Eden and Gethsemane, is just going to remain focused in Eden. And I'll forewarn you that it's probably the most difficult part of the entire story because it highlights man's sin. And none of us like to look at sin. None of us like to see the consequences of sin. But I have a responsibility and I have an obligation as a teacher of God's word and a shepherd of your souls to talk to you about the consequences of sin and help you to realize that each and every one of us has fallen underneath his curse. That's not something, that being said, to be ashamed of or to be embarrassed of or to feel isolated in. It would be a very, very dark story indeed if it ended right here. But I need you to keep in mind that this is just a part of the story. It's not the entire thing. And so as we look at what has taken place in the garden with Adam and Eve, I think we can all relate, if we were honest, to this part of their story because we've all had our what-have-you-done moments that reveal our own brokenness. And my goal is not to have you or myself relive any of those things or to dwell on any of those things, but to remember that it is a part of the story as a whole. Yes, God is love. Yes, God is rich in mercy. Yes, he is full of forgiveness. Yes, he is indeed the healer of souls. But if we are not shown the depth of our depravity, we can never fully appreciate the reach of God's grace. And so I would do the gospel an injustice. I would do you guys an injustice as well if all we ever talked about was God's great love and grace and mercy and forgiveness towards you without you also having a full understanding and appreciation of the depth of your depravity and the sin that had entered into your heart just as it entered into Adam and Eve's heart. And so to more fully appreciate the story of God's redemptive grace of humanity, we've got to look at the depravity and the depth of our sin. But it makes the story that much more grand. And so we've got to address the reality of our sin. But remember, this is not the end of the story. It goes on from here. That's why you've got to come back next week to get the, get the finale. You've got to get the finale. You've got to see how it works out. You have to see the, the magnificence of what God has done. So Adam and Eve, they've, they've messed up bad. And I actually see something interesting in God's dialogue with them because he begins to ask them a series of questions. And I think in those questions that we find him asking them, he's showing us the extent of what sin has done. So I want to go through and highlight this, this dialogue that God has with Adam and Eve in the garden after sin has entered in, and specifically the questions that he pointedly asks them and what they stand to reveal to us about the extent of what sin can do in our lives. So if you go back and, and look at the account in verse 8, after they had eaten the fruit of the tree that God told them not to, it says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, here's the first question, and he said to him, Where are you? Where are you? Which essentially 
says to us this, you're not where you should be. After Adam and Eve had taken the fruit and ate, God at some point comes through on his morning walk through the garden. A walk that he would normally have been accompanied along with Adam and Eve. Yet we don't find them with God at this point. We find them hiding from God. And so knowing that something obviously isn't right, God calls out to Adam and he asks the question, where are you? It's not that God didn't actually know where they were. Right? He's the God of the universe. He's the creator of everything that is taking place. And so he has a full awareness of everything that takes place within his creation. He is not ignorant of the things that take place within the context of the very thing that he created. And so God calling out to Adam, where are you, is not signifying that God doesn't actually know where Adam and Eve are. It's not signifying that he's ignorant of the fact of what has taken place or what has happened. It's not like he's lost track of them at any given moment. So it could actually be read as this, Adam, why are you not where you should be? And that's important for us to understand the context of that question because it shows us the very first thing that the extent of sin can take us to. Because this gives us the reality of sin's extent is, is that it's simply this. It places man out of a right position before God. So when God enters into the garden and he asks Adam and he asks Eve, where are you? And essentially says to them, why are you not where you should be? This shows us the first ill effect that sin has had upon the relationship between God and man. And it's that man is now out of position in relation to where he should be with God. The fellowship that they once had that was in perfection is now fractured. It's broken, it's, it's messed up, it's out of sync. Adam is no longer walking alongside God as he normally would have been. He's now hiding from God in the bushes. Sin has placed them somewhere that they should have never been. Hiding from God's presence. But why? why? Why hide? I find it curious that they're hiding in some regards because never once before have they ever had any reason to hide from God's presence. Never once before had they seen the anger of God. Never once before had they seen the wrath of God. Never once before had they heard judgment come from God because there was no sin. It was perfect unity. It's perfect harmony. It was perfect fellowship. And now all of a sudden, they're hiding from God, which is something that man had never done before. So it's interesting to me that their default response after sin entered into their hearts was to hide from God's presence. But why? Could it be that in that moment, Adam and Eve reflected on God's words that the moment that you eat of that tree, you will surely die? And what scares us the most? I think if we were honest, most of us would say that our greatest fear is of what's unknown. Death was a foreign thing in the garden. Death was an unknown. They didn't even know what death was. It had never existed in that place before. And that fear of something being unknown, I think, drove them from God's presence. What's going to happen? What's God going to do? How's he going to respond? What is this, what is this death stuff? We, we've, never, we've never seen that. We've never experienced that. We've never witnessed that. That's never been a part of our life. So, so what, what, what is that? What could that possibly be? And that fear drove them into hiding from God's 
presence. But see, sin didn't only bring with it death. Their hiding also shows us that it brought shame. It brought guilt. It brought embarrassment. And it brought fear. You guys know how it is, right? When you, when you do something wrong, when you got caught red-handed doing something that you should not have done as a child, your first reaction was to do what most times? Well, first it was to cover it up, which is exactly what they did by sewing the fig leaves together. They tried to cover their shame. They tried to cover their mistakes. They tried to cover their embarrassment. And then the next default response that follows that is to what? To hide. We've all done this as kids, right? When you knew you did something that your parents told you not to do, they very specifically said, don't do this specific thing. And then what'd you do? You couldn't help yourself. You had to go and do that very specific thing. And whatever that thing was that it involved, after you did it, more than likely you tried to cover it up in some way. You tried to get rid of the evidence. You did everything that you could to cover your tracks to try and make sure that your parents didn't find out. And then whether it was you yourself personally or whatever it is that you did, whatever it is that you broke, whatever it is that you left laying around the house that shouldn't have been there, you tried to hide it to make sure that it was never found, to make sure that it was never uncovered. You ever stop to think where those default reactions and responses come from? Right here. Genesis 3, when sin entered in, default reactions to that sin, to that guilt, to that shame, those emotions that you feel that God never intended for man to experience are a default from the curse that entered into the garden at the dawn of creation. So God's question of where are you is essentially him saying to Adam and Eve as his creation, you shouldn't be in hiding. You shouldn't be in shame. You shouldn't be experiencing guilt. You shouldn't be feeling fear. So why, Adam and Eve, are you somewhere that you shouldn't be? Why, Adam and Eve, are you now experiencing certain feelings and emotions that you should not be feeling? Is it because you did what you weren't supposed to do? That's exactly what happens when we allow sin and entrance into our lives. It puts us out of position in relation to the personal walk that God desires to have with us. Those of you that have been born again, you have a relationship with Jesus, and something about your walk with him begins to feel off, and I know you know what I'm talking about. Those moments where your walk with him, where your closeness with him begins to feel off, 99% of the time it can be traced back to some sin you have harbored somewhere in your life. That's why Paul told the believers in Galatians chapter 5 or 16 and 17 to walk by the Spirit so you will not gratify the desires of the flesh because the flesh and the Spirit are opposed to each one another to keep you from doing the things that you should not be doing. So the moment that we as born-again followers of Jesus begin to do things that we should not be doing, our fellowship, our walk with God feels off because we revert back to that sinful nature that Adam and Eve brought into the garden. And instead of walking with God through the garden, we begin to hide from God in the garden. And the same is true in your life in this modern day, in this, in this very moment right now. Some of y'all walked in here tonight, I guarantee you, a little bit timid because you know what's in your heart. And you know, this is a place where we come to enter into God's presence and to worship him and to lay our hearts before him, but we're timid and we got a little bit of shame and we got a little bit of guilt and I hadn't been spending time in his word lately and I haven't been spending time in prayer lately and I can't remember the last time I actually worshiped outside of this place lately. Why? Because I got some stuff in here that doesn't need to be there. 
And so every time I get close to God's presence, I have to fight that default reaction to run and hide from him. And I think it's important that you see this. It's not all bad news tonight. It's not all bad news. I'm going to give you a little bit of good. I think it's important that you see this. Even after Adam and Eve sinned, God still came back to the garden. So hold on a second. Because you need to see the goodness of this. Even after. This is, this is post-apple bite. Mango bite, grapefruit bite, whatever it was. We don't know. Fruit of the tree. Post-bite, God still comes back to the garden. Instantaneously, that should fire off an image of his grace. A holy and just, perfect and righteous God who told them not to do the very thing that they have just done instead of leaving them in the garden by themselves is now back in the garden with them post their sinful actions. Listen, so often when we sin, when we mess up, when we make a mistake, when we have a whoopsie, when we have a boo-boo, when we have an uh-oh, when we have an oh boy, we think that God gets angry and we think that he gets frustrated and we think that he leaves us in our sin out of that anger and out of that frustration and out of that annoyance because he's told us time and time again, don't go over there and do that. But we went over there and did that once again. And so we think that God gets frustrated and he gets angry and he gets mad, he gets full of wrath and he leaves us in our sin. But it's not that he stops walking. It's that we just go into hiding. God never stopped coming to the garden. God showed up the next day. He's walking through the garden like he normally would have been. He was expecting Adam and Eve to still be there walking with him. How easy would it have been for a holy, righteous, and just God to look down and see Adam and Eve do the very thing that he told them not to do and say, all right, good job, guys. You screwed that up. See you later. Fix your mess. Find a way to make it right. But instead, he's right back in the garden with them. And how gracious of a God do we have? How merciful and how loving, how forgiving of a God do we have that, that he doesn't just leave us in our sin, but he continues to walk beside us. He doesn't ever leave us. We just go into hiding. We separate ourselves from, from his presence. Even in our sin, even in Adam and Eve's sin, God called out to them and made his presence known. And that's good stuff. God enters into the garden, Adam and Eve's sin, and he says, where are you? Because here I am. He calls out to them, and he makes his presence very real and very known. And even in our sins, the Bible tells us that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Even still in our sin, God came down to walk with us and make his presence known. That's a good Lord. One more thing to point out. I got something for us men specifically. I got something for you men. Verse 9. Check this out. It says, The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? God specifically addressed Adam. Why? Because he was the leader, he was the first created. He was the one whom God from the beginning had established 
as the leader of the marriage, as the leader of the home. It's not that Adam and Eve, hear me out, it's not that Adam and Eve were not created equal in the image of God. They were. But God established an order within the family, within the marriage, within the home, that the man would take a leadership and more responsible role. God comes down to the garden after the mistake has been made, and he addresses Adam specifically, men, because he was to be the leader. Yes, Eve was the one that was tempted. Yes, Eve brought Adam the fruit. But Adam could have easily put his foot down and said, we're not going there. We're not doing that. God told us not to do that. You need to stop talking to that thing over there that shouldn't be talking to begin with. Here's a shovel. Go chop that thing's head off. Here's some duct tape. Go put that fruit back on the tree. This ain't happening. Listen to me, men. As a man of God, we will be held accountable for the way in which we do or do not lead our family, our kids, our wives, within the community, within your marriage, within your job, everything, God will hold you to a higher standard because of the position and the role that he has placed you in. So you better get serious right now about walking with God day in and day out because each and every one of us will stand before him one day and give an account of what we did. So I'm challenging you men a little bit because there is a severe lack of men of God in our culture. And if you guys don't take a stand, nobody will. And if your marriage suffers, if your family suffers, if your kids suffer, all you have to do is go and look in the mirror. Take responsibility. Start being a man of God right now and understanding that he will hold you accountable. Second question. Man's out of position with God. The relationship is completely fouled up. God calls the man, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God speaks the second question. Who told you that you were naked? Who told you? Which shows us the second extent of sin's reality, and that's the fact that it causes a major identity crisis. When Adam responds to God calling out and asking where he's at, he explains that he's hiding out of fear because of his nakedness. God responds with another question. Who told you you were naked? Everybody say naked. I feel like it's just that awkward thing in the room that we hear, but we don't really want to hear because it's weird and it's strange, so let's get it out of our system. They're naked, and they know it, and it's weird. And that's why there's fig leaves. The question strikes at the heart of one of sin's most damaging consequences, which is the reality that it destroys identity. If you were to go back and look in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 25, you would see that God's word says this, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed prior to sin entering in. So in Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve are naked and there's no shame which reveals of us this innocent, uncorrupted delight that they had in who they are. But when sin entered in through their actions, their nakedness becomes a shame to them, and they attempt to cover themselves up. This shows us that they are no longer satisfied or content or delighted in who God created them to be. They don't see themselves as this very good creation anymore, but as something that's flawed. This is why... I can't even begin to adequately explain how gross and corruptive sin is. God creates man 
places him in the garden and says, this part of my creation is very good. Man sins, and instead now of being content as the very good creation that God had made them to be, they attempt to cover themselves up in shame and in guilt and embarrassment, no longer content, no longer seeing themselves as very good anymore. Sin is a destroyer of identity. They don't see themselves as good anymore. They see themselves as flawed. Their identity is corrupted. It's humanity's first identity crisis right here in Genesis 3. And we've essentially been stuck in it ever since. Just look around. Whether people admit it or not, one of their greatest pursuits is seeking to validate who they are. Looking for fulfillment in this or looking for satisfaction in that. I need to change my gender. I need to fit a certain size. I need to make an X amount of money. You know what all this is? This is an identity crisis because sin entered in thousands of years ago and humanity has struggled along ever since seeking to validate who they are. Losing touch with the truth that we were created for more and to be more than our desires. Listen, every single one of us have desires. Every single one of us have fleshly desires as a result of what took place in this garden on that fateful day. But God created you to be more than what your desires are. We were created to walk with God. We were made in his image. Beautifully crafted with intentional design and purpose. The psalmist put it this way that when you were in your mother's womb... God was crafting you piece by piece, intentionally designing every single part of you and placing upon you a specific purpose. But when sin enters in, it robs you of that. You begin to lose sight of the fact that you were fearfully and wonderfully made, that you have been intricately woven, that you were a very good masterpiece of creation that God placed upon this earth. Let me bring you in on something Concerning the devil, he's an image envier. It's why he wants you to choose a false one. Because if he can get you to do that, he knows it can devalue your image and your identity. Like Adam and Eve, we are also made in the image of God. But listen, the very one that Satan has always desired to be is the one whose image we get to bear. And that's why he hates you so bad. That's why he does not have your best interest in mind. That's why he will always use a bait-and-switch tactic to try and get you to slip and fall into the same fate that he also has because he's envious of your image. Prior to his fall, the reason why he fell, because he desired to be God. He was such a beautiful part of creation that he became corrupted by his own beauty and desired to be above God himself. And so he fell, was corrupted ever since that time, and then God creates man and he gives man his image and the devil can't stand it. It drives him crazy that you get to bear the image of the very one that he desired to be. So he will do whatever he can to tear you down, to destroy your understanding of the identity that God gave you. God walks into the garden and Adam says, I hid because I was naked. And God says, well, who told you you were naked? Listen, some of you here tonight, you need to stop letting other voices influence your identity. 
Who told you that you were anything other than what God had called you to be? Who told you that you had to walk down that path? Who told you that you had to stay in that situation? Who told you that you had to be a product of your parents' decisions? Who told you that you had to follow into their footsteps? Some of you need to stop letting the wrong voices influence your identity and who Christ has set you apart to be. Some of us also need to realize and understand that this is another reason why we need to stop flirting around with sin because it is muddying your identity. It's corrupting you and it is robbing you of seeing the truth of who God has seriously created you to be. Someone who bears his image. So, sin has put man out of position with God. Sin has caused a major identity crisis where man is no longer content as the creation that God has molded and shaped him to be. And the conversation continues. Adam says in verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Sin always looks for excuses, by the way. Very rarely do we want to just own up to the fact that we made a mistake. It's funny because in the garden you see a lot of first. You, you see the first sin, which we're highlighting tonight, but you also see the first marriage between Adam and Eve, and then you see the first marital argument. Like, sin's corrosive effects take place in a hurry. Like, just think, think about it. I know some of y'all in here are married. A lot of you aren't, and a lot of you hope to be one day. But it's funny because within the context of marriage, you think about arguments. It's kind of crazy to think about a marriage that existed that, that didn't have arguments in it. But that's exactly what Adam and Eve had before sin entered in. They always got along. They always saw eye to eye. It was always perfect harmony amongst them. We, we can't even fathom that now. Like you can't even, some of y'all are, how many of y'all like have a dating relationship right now? Put your hands up. I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad you're single or not. It's fine. We'll work through it. You can do it. Don't give up. Every single one of y'all, whether you're in a relationship now, present or past, you've had arguments within that relationship. Every single one of those arguments were dumb and stupid. Were they not? And so here in the garden, we have a first. We have Adam and Eve having an argument. God calls man to give an account, and Adam's like, well, if it hadn't have been for that woman that you put in this garden with me, I would have never ate that fruit. It's funny. I'm sorry. We're chasing a rabbit for a second. I wonder what it was like when God finished the conversation with Adam and Eve. Like, you know she unloaded on him after God walked off. You're seriously going to blame me for that? You should have told me not to eat it. You shouldn't have been over there eating it. You should have kept me from it. You should have been talking to a snake. Just saying. Over here minding my business. They're at each other's throats. Sin's corrosion is taking place in a very, very fast way. And so... The conversation continues, and God's focus shifts towards Eve, and he says to the woman, what is this you have done? Third question. What have you done? In other words, there are going to be consequences. And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Excuses! Adam, what'd you do? Did you eat the fruit? 
Yeah, but Eve, Eve made me. Eve, what'd you do? Did you eat the fruit? Yeah, but the snake made me. There, there, there's, no, there's no taking ownership of what's taking place. It's always somebody else's fault. And so the Lord God said to the servant, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. you got to come back next week because we're going to get to the good stuff right there. It's a little clue, a little, a little teaser. Good stuff. And then to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust. And to dust you shall return. There are always consequences for sin. God's grace is clearly evident in the garden concerning what has happened, but that can't overshadow the truth that there is still judgment because sin always involves consequence. Always. There is an account to be given. There was a consequence for the serpent. God says, because you've done this, you're cursed. You're going to crawl on your belly and you're going to eat dust. And your fate's going to be a lot worse than you even realize. There were consequences for Eve. God announces that now there's going to be pain when you give birth to children. On top of that, there's going to exist a wrongful desire in you towards your husband. When he says your desire shall be for your husband, you can take that word for if you want to and swap it out and put against. So in other words, it can be translated, your desire shall be against your husband. That's why she has a desire to rule over him, but God says he will rule over you. So there always exists, ladies, you'll find this to be true within your marriage, there will be an, an existing desire within you at times to just be really annoyed with your husband and want to rule over him, but God says that's wrong. That is a sinful desire, which by the way, God would say, I didn't place there, that's a consequence of your sin. Your desire will be to rule over him. And you guys can talk to any married woman in the back of this room, they can attest to that reality. It is a very real struggle. It's why we can talk about in Ephesians where God calls women to be submissive to their husbands and just that one very word makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up because you're like, I tell you what, he ain't going to tell me. He going to handle the broom just as much as I do in the house. It's a wrongful desire. And God says, as a result, as a consequence of your sin. Now, take a look at this, though. The two things that were to be so joyful for her, giving birth to children, what do, you, what, do you, what do most women desire more than anything else? To have a child, to be married. God says, these two things that were to be such great joyful desires are now going to be tainted, and your heart is going to feel that. And then he moves to Adam. There's consequences for Adam. He says, Adam, your labor is now going to be increased in difficulty and frustration. The easy abundance that you had in this garden, that's gone now. The walking around, working the ground, having like nice fertile soil, that's always easy to put a shovel in, to turn over. You know, you don't even have to break a sweat. It's just like as easy as it gets in the garden. All that's gone now. You're going to experience famine. You're going to experience dryness. You're going to try and put a shovel in the ground. It's going to be as hard as concrete. 
And every day you're going to get up at the crack of dawn, and you're going to get up there, and you're going to try and bust through that ground. You're going to put a seed in the ground. You're going to cover it up, and then you're just going to hope that it rains so that seed can grow, when in reality it may not. That may be a waste. You might not get anything out of it. By the sweat of your brow, you're not going to work the ground. These, these days of easy abundance, they're gone. They're, they're over with. You messed it up. It's ruined now because of what you've done. Adam's heart is going to feel the fractured relationship that was supposed to be so harmonious between him and the ground of the earth. Listen, when, when, you, when you hurt God's heart, your heart is also going to experience hurt as well. These consequences that he gave out to, let's just include them all. The consequences that he gave out to the serpent, who we know to be Satan, struck at his heart. Why? Because Satan is very, very proud. Well, what's more degrading than having to eat dust and crawl around? The consequences for Eve struck at her heart. What are the two things that she was to enjoy more so than anything else? Being married and having children, the joy of children. God says these things are going to be tainted now. You're going to have to fight a wrongful desire to rule over your husband, and you're going to experience horrific pain in childbirth. And the consequences for Adam strike at his heart as well. The easy relationship, Adam, that you were supposed to have with the ground, this, this nice, easy come, easy go fellowship that you're supposed to have with the garden, that's going to be tainted now. You're going to have to work. You're going to have to sweat. You're going to have to grind. That relationship is no longer going to be what it should be, just like our relationship isn't anymore either because it's ruined. It's messed up. It's broken. It's funny because at the beginning of this narrative, it says that after the sixth day, God had finished his creation, and he looked upon it, and he called it very good. And on the seventh day, he rested. At the start of this narrative, all these things are good. But now, this is not good. This is not good. What can possibly be done to make it good once again? That's why the tale is to be continued.